Welcome to Newcastle Family History Society podcasts. The Newcastle Family History Society, located on a Awabakal land in Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia, exists to provide support and encouragement for those interested in family history. This podcast will review one of our latest publications, The People of Newcastle and the Hunter Valley. The publication, in three volumes, recounts stories of 150 individuals ranging from bushrangers and early settlers to civic leaders, military heroes and business people in Newcastle and the Hunter Valley of New South Wales. Together, they paint a picture of other times, helping us better understand our past so we can plan a better future. Society member Carol Duncan is joined today by the compilers of these stories, Marie and Ken Schilling. Ken and Marie, welcome. Thank you so Thank much you. for joining us for another conversation. Um, it's always wonderful to catch up with you and to uh, learn more about the work that you're doing with the publications that you have spent many years now <laughs> being dedicated to producing. The latest project, which I'm sure is just another monumental effort from the pair of you, is People of Newcastle and the Hunter Valley. How did this project come about? Mm. Um, well, as a family history society, we often have people coming in searching for information about their family. And when we talk to these people, the thing that strikes us is the amazing stories that they come up with. Yeah. Information that we had no idea about. Little snippets of information that put together make a marvellous story. And these stories are really too good to lose. So we started to think we should be doing something with them. A lot of the people that we found out about are buried in Sandgate Cemetery. Mm -hmm. And so the idea came about that we would do a tour of Sandgate Cemetery, uh, selected headstones, do some research and offer a free tour to the public. This was done first of all in 2016 and the success from that tour led us to form, form a dedicated group who would, the aim of that group was to ensure that a tour was carried out every year, an annual event, which we did mm. until of course COVID interrupter. Uh, the great interrupter. Exactly, yes. exactly. We had a tour ready to go. Uh, that one's been on the back burner. And now we are hoping to get permission from Northern Cemeteries to recommence that tour. However, we were not completely satisfied that we were doing everything that we could possibly do with these stories because people would come to a tour, enjoy the tour, and then leave. And the information that was passed to them more or less went into the ether. Mm. So we thought, okay, something more has to be done with these stories. And the idea then came up for publication of a book. So we set the parameters for a publication, things like the length of the story, etc. Yeah. And probably the main parameter was that the subject of the story had to be buried or cremated within the Hunter Valley area. 
so we extended from Sandgate Cemetery to any cemetery or crematoria in the Hunter Valley. Our aim there was for 50 stories. Well, <laughs> the rest, as we say, is history. Uh-huh. I knew uh, that was coming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we now have three volumes, 50 stories in each volume, mm-hmm. making the 150 stories altogether. And probably we could have gone on past that mark too, except we were sort of wanting to embark on another project. So we put a full stop to people of Newcastle and the Hunter Valley. Yeah. And we are now off on a military tack. Yeah. With, with the, the next book, looking mm. at military mm. history, mili- people have served in the military, mm. uh, what is your, just a quick diversion, what is your target for that? 50 people? Uh, not necessarily this one, no, no. Yeah. We're doing it in two parts and it's um, basically... Right from the very beginning, the Maori Wars, right up to World War One in Part One, and then from part from World War One onward in Part Two. Oh, fantastic! So it's a, uh, it's been a very very interesting project. This one because we're not only talking about soldiers' stories, but other little things like, for instance, the the paper that was published in World War One. Uh, things like that that introduce interest to the story, to oh, the whole publication. I'm really looking forward to that. Mm. Let's just jump back to people of uh, Newcastle and the Hunter Valley. Can we have just a few? And I have, I am lucky to be in possession of all three volumes, and I adore these stories that people share with mm. you, and that you've worked so hard on preserving. But can you share some of those with us? All right. Well, uh, I'll start this part off then. Um, we picked all these, any cemetery or crematorium in the Hunter Valley is a, a place where we can find subjects for our stories. And um, two of the stories in our books actually were people who were buried outside of a cemetery of a fence. But, uh, oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> Rose Bush in Murundi and uh, uh, a First Nations bush ranger uh, near Singleton. So, um, We've, um, we've had a huge area to, to, to uh, get our subjects from. But uh, one of our subjects uh, is buried in Murundi Cemetery and his name was Emmanuel Philip Bloomfield. Everyone called him Manny and he was a First Nations uh, fellow. His uh, um, story was written by Coralie Watson, yep. uh, written, uh, helped uh, considerably, I think, by her husband, Robert, uh, Manny was born in 1916 and he lost his Indigenous father within six months. Oh, gosh. So here we have a, a mother and three children left on their own and this is um, the start of this, uh, this young fellow's life. Um, they lived on the Hayden family Bloomfield near Murundi mm-hmm. so, and that's where he got his surname. We often hear about how uh, that it can be very difficult to uh, help First Nations people with family histories. Is mm. that the case with Manny? Um, I, I should think that uh, in the case of trying to trace his father back, that probably would be the case mm. because um, I've just finished reading a book that was published in the 1890s and in that book, the author talks about the Aboriginal race 
well, they're dying out anyway. Oh. So, mm-hmm. yeah. what was the point of keeping records? Hmm. Um, however, uh, Manny uh, started his life at, at Bloomfield, but the family went to live at Blandford. He went to Blandford Public School, like all the other young men and the young boys in the district. And um, he became fascinated with railway trains, uh, as most of us did at that age. Um, he, uh, uh, after school, he uh, went back to Bloomfield, however, started there as a labourer, eventually became a stockman, which was the life of many people like him. In World War II, he enlisted, was posted to Darwin and then posted to New Guinea with the engineers. Um, he became a, uh, a sergeant, so he must have been jolly good at his job. Um, he earned a bravery award. He raced a motorbike through enemy lines to deliver a message, which was probably a pretty hair-raising experience. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. When he returned from the war, he finally got a job on the railways, ah. which had been a lifetime ambition for him. So uh, that is just one of our stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, it's very, very difficult out of 150 stories, just choosing a few. But the next story is about Garnet Dart. Quite an unusual name, that one. That's a great name, (laughs) isn't it? It is, it is. (laughs) And actually, in looking to see if there are any rallies around still with that name, I went to the telephone book, and there are four or five darts within our area. So... You know? <laughs> Potential descendants. Right. Hmm. <laughs> well, young Darnet, Garnet Dart, sorry, uh, went to Cook's Hill Superior Public School and he was the first captain of the school. And he was a keen member of the school cadets. And his class uh, mates gave him the nickname of Gunner. And that nickname stuck with him right through life. As a young man, he um, spent a lot of time, when he wasn't working on the railway, he spent a lot of time at Bar Beach, swimming, learning uh, life-saving techniques, Mm. etc. there. And he and two other men, David Thompson and Jim Ancliffe, were the the small group that started the Surf Life-Saving Club at Bar Beach. They developed the rules and regulations for the club, many of which are still in existence today. Yeah. And um, Garnet Dart, probably through his training with cadets, brought a, a bearing to the, um, the group that formed for marching. At that time, surf carnivals were becoming popular and, of course, one of the main features of a, of a surf carnival was the march past. Mm. And Garnet started to train the group for Bar Beach. And they, he did very well with that group. But then World War I intervened and Garnet felt that he had to do his bit. But he also said... I could never kill another human being, not even a German. So needless to say, 
he was placed in a an ambulance corps and that was where he served. He saw service at places like Ypres, Villers Bretonneux and the Hindenburg Line, all very dangerous situations. Mm. He kept a diary, but the entries in the diary were very brief. Uh, sometimes he would be acknowledging mates that he had caught up with, including Jim Ancliffe from the same surf club uh, and another couple of his friends over there that he would meet up when he was relieved from the front. But he wrote very, very little about his service there. You might get a few words such as 80 casualties, busy all night, or perhaps big stunt all night, no sleep. So just those few words. They, they just give us a little glimpse of the sort of experiences that he was having. Mm. I sometimes think those who saw the worst say the least. Yeah, even when you're talking to somebody who has experienced war, you will find that often people just close up and say very, very little yeah. And you, you realise, right, that ex experience they had must have been horrific. Yeah. I think we often hear that description uh, by so many people of trauma, of return mm. service men and women who, who just lock that experience away. Yes. Gunner's Diary, was that published or is that held by the society? How did you access that? No, that came from an article in the newspaper Right. Yes. Okay, so when Garnet returned, he went immediately to the surf club, which was almost decimated because it was only a fairly small club, really, at that stage. And people, including Jim Ancliffe, who were the, the heart of the club, did not return home after the war. Mm. So when Garnet came back, he and one or two mates had to gather things together again and develop the club from square one, basically. So he, um, he certainly left his mark from the point of view of the surf club there at Bar Beach. He went on to become a, um, quite a, an important member in the surf, uh, surf life-saving world and Bar Beach Club recognised his efforts for them with a, a life membership. It's been said that Garnet Dart was one of the most colourful and influential characters of the interwar years for the surf life-saving movement in Australia. That was the quote from the paper article. But as an aside, anyone who happens to be moving around in the area of Bar Beach, stop for a moment, park your car in the car park, get out and have a look at the war memorial there from the surf club. Uh, it only has nine names on it, so it's not a big memorial. Those nine men were the ones who did not return from war. And they were, as I've said before, the heart of the club, basically. So Garnet Dart is just 
to all intents and purposes an ordinary bloke. It's not a name necessarily that you hear a lot about, but I think he deserves to be mentioned today. Mm. Do you have another one for us, Ken? I do, actually, yes. And this is a special story because it was written by Anne Hudson, who was unfortunately no longer with us. But it's the story of her grandfather, William Fraser. And William Fraser was just another ordinary bloke. Uh, apart from the fact that there are memories of him all around town. He was a carpenter and a very talented amateur photographer. His work can be found in, in many of our local churches, um, including the uh, Presbyterian Church in Hamilton. Uh, a lot of the woodwork in that is, is, uh, is here. So it's been there for well over a, a hundred years. Um, you go into St Andrew's uh, Church in, uh, in Newcastle and the honour roll meet you as you go in the front door from the great uh, the honour roll from the Great War mm. because he built many of those honour boards. Isn't that wonderful? For the, uh, and uh, just not for our local area mm. but way outside the uh, in uh, other parts of the state. Yeah. Uh, people came to him to have honour boards made. And the beauty of it was he took photographs of all his work. Yeah. So when we were able to put on a display uh, at the society that um, Anne put on, uh, here we had pictures of this chap's carpentry, his plans, so much material. It was a really great day. That's a really rich resource. It is. Isn't it? His photographs not only recorded his active life, he was very strong on... Um, uh, he was in a cycle club, for instance, yeah. which in the day was a big thing. Um, he was able to, to create very amazing trick photographs. And having been a photographer myself since the somewhere in my mid-teens, I can appreciate the, the skill involved in these pictures. There is one photograph of himself playing cards with himself and himself. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> There's another one of his wife conversing with his wife in the garden. Yeah. Uh, they're really amazing pieces of work. Now, like all the subjects of these books, William is buried within the bounds of the Hunter Valley. He's in the one of the Anglican sections of Sandgate Cemetery, so his grave can be visited. But it was really wonderful to get this story from, from Anne, uh, and uh, it's a fitting memorial to her and her, um, the affection she had for her grandfather. I want to see more of his photographs. <laughs> They sound amazing. And it, when you've had, you know, a smartphone in your pocket yeah. for the last 20 years, mm. it's it's so easy to forget yeah. what a manual process photography and processing yeah. and printing actually was. Well, there are many of his photographs, now that you mention it, in a, one of Greg Ray's books. Excellent. I forget the title, but it's the book that has two girls standing on the end of Newcastle Breakwater looking out to sea yeah. as a cover photograph. I think it's one of his. Yeah. Um, so uh, there, there has been a record made and it's mm. available. But it, it was really great to have that story from Anne. Well, another story we have is of Florence Mary Wilson, probably a name that very, very few people would recognise today. Florence was born in Richmond in Victoria in 1892. 
And when her mother remarried, she took on the name of her stepfather, which was Fawaz, a rather unusual name too. But it was as Florence Fawaz that this 21-year-old girl took herself off to Ballarat to compete in a what was really well known as Steadford mm-hmm. there. It was known countrywide, this is Steadford. And she loved singing. She had no lessons, but she just thought, I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> so off she went. She took part in the Estedford and she won many of the categories that she entered, much to the judge's surprise. And they were so taken aback with this untrained voice that they suggested to her, you should go for training to Melbourne Conservatorium. Four years later, that is exactly what she did. While studying, she was employed by J.C. Williamson Films Mm -hmm. in one of the main theatres in Melbourne. She was employed to sing between the showing of silent movies there. She wasn't paid a great deal for it, but it gave her a little bit of exposure to public. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so she started, started off on a very bottom rung of the ladder, if you like, from the point of view of public performance. But at the age of 27, she finally decided that she needed more experience, so she sailed for New York. And the American dream wasn't all that she had hoped, so she decided, uh, I'd better return home, which she did. She set sail via London Mm -hmm. for home. And she spent a little while in London, which was very, very lucky for her because she was paid 30 pounds each week to learn the Wagnerian operas. Fantastic. 30 pounds a week back then for this young woman was really, really worthwhile. And she was doing something that she loved. Mm. The voice that she was born with lent itself beautifully to the drama of Wagner's operas. And in 1921, she appeared in a concert at Albert Hall, not as Florence Fowers, but as Florence Ostrel. And that was a name suggested to her by the general... Uh, manager of Covent Garden as being a tribute to her homeland, Austral, Australia. You can see the connection. Yeah. Well, she became an instant success appearing in operas over there. Early in 1923, she joined Nellie Melba for a concert, but that was the one and only time that they appeared together on the stage. You can't help but wonder if there was a little bit of jealousy or something that came into play there between the two singers. <laughs> they were both renowned singers. Professional <laughs> rivalry. I might mm. be reading more into it than really existed, however. Yeah. The interesting thing was Florence Wilson, remember that was her birth surname, Wilson, 
Florence Wilson and Helen Porter Mitchell were both born in Richmond, Victoria. Florence Wilson becoming Florence Austral and Helen Porter Mitchell becoming known as Dame Nellie Melba. Yeah. Two of Australia's greatest female operatic singers, both born in one suburb of Melbourne. That's extraordinary, isn't it? It is, What a coincidence. Mm. I know that Anne Hardy from the University of Newcastle Archives has done some research on Florence Austral previously. And I believe they actually hold a beautiful portrait of her. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. We have that portrait in our book. Yeah. Yes. Oh, gorgeous. Mm. In 1925, Florence married John Amadio. He was a virtuoso flautist and he often performed in concert with Florence, but their marriage was not to last. Florence was acclaimed worldwide Mm. for her performances, and one particular performance in Berlin, something happened. She was halfway through the the opera, and suddenly she realised she couldn't move. Her legs just simply would not support her. So she sort of hung on to a part of the scenery nearby to get through that performance. Her critics criticised her for such a wooden performance. But those, her fans, knew that something was very, very wrong. This Mm. wasn't the Florence that they knew. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and that was the end of her operatic career. She did continue with the odd concert performance, which she could more or less prop herself up on the the piano or something like that to be able to get through a concert. Mm. She did continue with them through uh, the war years, but then finally she realised she had to give that up also, concerts. So she returned home and she joined the teaching staff at Newcastle Conservatorium. But again, after a little while, health issues intervened and she had to give up teaching, Mm. which must have been quite a blow for her because really music was her life. So Florence Austral became Florence Amadio, living very quietly in Merriweather until she finally had to go into a nursing home. She died in 1968. She was cremated at Beresfield and a memorial scholarship was created in her name at the Newcastle Conservatorium. What a story. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you got another one, Ken? yeah, just just a brief one. Okay. Yeah, okay. It's it's one actually a story that I put together about Gordon Campbell Wilson, whom I knew nothing about until Ed Tonks called one day with a pile of photographs and asked me if I would copy them for him, which I used to do um, <laughs> regularly, and um, they were of this fellow, and here was a chap in uh, helmet, goggles, and leather coat standing in front of. A biplane. Sounds dapper. Yes. Um, <laughs> in the Great War. And uh, 
pictures of him later in civilian life, standing in front of a biplane with his fiancée. There was quite a deal of material. And there it rested for a while. But then uh, the Society did its cemetery tours, and here's Gordon Campbell Wilson in Sandgate Cemetery, a war hero in Sandgate Cemetery. And uh, the grave has a neat bronze plaque on it, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't always there. Actually, Ed Tonks found the grave unmarked, which is not very respectful to a man who had his sort of military career. So Ed organised for the grave to be tidied up and a plaque put on it. Mm. One of the significant things about the plaque is it lists this chap's medals. And it's quite an interesting collection. Military Cross, Air Force Cross and a Distinguished Conduct Medal plus mentioned in dispatches. Apparently that collection of medals, MC, AFC and DCM, is a unique mixture in our armed services, uh, especially from the Great War. After the war, uh, Gordon Campbell Wilson returned to Australia, met up with a young lady with whom he intended to spend the rest of his life and started to organise an aviation business. Unfortunately, while travelling by motor car, he was oh, in- no. He was involved in an accident and was killed. And there is a street in Young named after him now Hmm. because that was near where he died. However, he was buried in Newcastle and his fiancée eventually um, uh, married another chap, but it was she who gave Ed uh, all the material, the photographs. Isn't that amazing? Um, But this story also... Uh, oh, sorry, when um, Gordon Campbell Wilson was uh, buried in Newcastle, Sandgate, one person who couldn't come because his plane, the Southern Cross, was having engine trouble <laughs> was Charles <laughs> Kingsford Smith. But Charles Ulm, Charles Ulm yeah. did fly over and dropped a wreath from a low-flying biplane onto the grave, which oh, what would, a have been story. So, would have been something to see. But this story uh, is just an example, too, of the cooperation we received from so many people mm. who not only helped us with the stories we prepared, but also wrote stories for the m- most of the stories, 150 stories in the books. Yeah. Mm. The last, last little you do have another offering one? Yeah. <laughs> that I have is one that I know, Carol, you are familiar with the story. It's about Benny. Now, in the congregational section of Sandgate Cemetery, there is a beautiful monument there in soft grey granite, which contrasts beautifully with the red-brown of the little fence surrounding it. As you approach it, the name Benny stands out. That's all. No other name. Just Benny. You wonder, who on earth was this Benny? Go a little bit closer and then you find there is a date of death below the name Benny. 13th of May, 1892. So we know the name Benny, we know the date and we assume the place Newcastle. 
off to Trove we go. <laughs> what a marvellous invention It is Trove just is. one of the most wonderful resources that oh, we have, isn't it? it it's, it's beyond belief. It really is. And being political just for a moment, thank you to our Commonwealth Government for ensuring the continuation of Trove. Hmm. They've put money into it because it was in danger of stopping. I might just mention for any listeners who aren't aware of what it is, I know most yes. society members will be, of course, Trove is an incredible archive, uh, digital archive created by the National Library of Australia. It is immense. Mm. It contains millions upon millions of newspapers, articles, journals, maps, photographs, you name it. It is one of the most extraordinary archives mm. we have access to, free access to. Yes, mm. Well, it took absolutely no time on Trove to find out the information that we wanted, just who was Benny. Well, it appears that Benny was William Benjamin Williams, the only child of Captain David Williams. And that man was the Newcastle manager of the New Zealand-based Union Steamship Company. And it appears that on the uh, on the day, particular day in May, the captain and his wife Maria Louise and their 13-year-old son went for a day out on the Hunter River. By the time they got to Morpeth, they realised that the boy really wasn't very well. So they should return home, not spend time in Morpeth, but mm. just return home. So. Captain Williams, his wife and young Benny set sail again for Newcastle. The further they went, the worse the boy became. And Captain Williams had to employ every ounce of his skill to try and push the little vessel along as fast as he could because Benny was in a lot of trouble. We can only... Imagine, I suppose, the anguish of the parents mm. as they watched their son, their only son, or only child, really, subsiding. Uh, at Newcastle, Dr Harris took Benny immediately to hospital, but De Benny died. All the shipping in Newcastle Harbour, which was considerable at that time, flew their flags at half-mast as a mark of respect to this well-known and well-loved family. Mm. Now, just again a little extra bit to the story. Benny's monument, when you see it, it has a canopy over the top. And usually monuments with canopies, the canopy is there to protect a, a statue or something important that needed protection. It's interesting to note that one of our members one day was walking through the cemetery with her daughter, helping her daughter with a school excursion. And the eye-catching monument of Benny's was worth further inspection. So they went over to have a look. And while they were there, they stopped a moment just to admire the little statue that was there of a little boy playing a violin underneath the canopy. Sadly, 
that little boy playing the violin is no longer on Benny's monument. And you can't help but wonder, where has that little boy gone? Mm. Oh, goodness me. Just some of the examples of the the collection of 150 amazing stories in these three volumes. They really are an absolute treasure and I know that you've still got more work to be doing. Ken and Marie, thank you so much for sharing uh, some of these stories with us. I know that uh, these volumes are available from the Newcastle Family History Society's online shop, nfhs.org.au. Just go to the website and you can have a look at that, or if you pop into the Society at 68 Elder Street in Lambton. Um, it's available there as well. In the introduction to your books, though, you've written that the stories paint pictures of other times helping us better understand our past so we can plan a better future. Have you got an example of what that means? Some of the subjects of the 150 stories in the three volumes were famous or well-known in their time. Mm. Most were not, just ordinary folk living their lives as best they could. There are a couple of bush rangers included, one of them female. Yes. <laughs> uh, but most were law-abiding and hard-working people whose stories simply demonstrate a quiet resolve to do at least to at least do no harm to others mm. as you pass through life. Wilhelm Helm and Anna Maria Jaeger were German bounty immigrants and their story was written by Chris Baker. He was a vine dresser and he used these skills to help make a fledgling wine industry grow and become the world-class producer it is today. Oh, we're immensely grateful to him. <laughs> Indeed we are. <laughs> Wilhelm's story demonstrates that we should appreciate the skills so many immigrants have and still are bringing to this country. Another story is about George Galton, and this outlines the growth of his business empire, beginning with a department store in Hunter Street, Newcastle. But the story was prompted by a clock he donated to Lambton Fire Brigade, which features in the book, yeah. I think the first picture on in his story. But why should we remember him particularly? Well, his continued efforts in caring for the welfare of his staff no doubt helped to ensure his success. But this is a lesson we should heed today as our economy undergoes some really significant changes. There were two stories one after the other, I think in volume three, Hazel Evans and Alice Ferguson. Hazel Evans was better known than Nobbies, was, was the saying. And Alice Ferguson, I grew up in Merriweather. Mm. Well, everyone in Merriweather knew Alice Ferguson. Hazel was a pianist, always ready to play. And Alice, known to all in the beachside suburbs, taught swimming. At a time when volunteers are becoming a rare breed, especially since COVID, the example of these two ladies really shines out. There is a minister in the Presbyterian section of Sandgate Cemetery who featured on one of our tours, Alexander Robson McVitie. Born in Scotland, where he gained his university degree while in his teens. Gosh. Yes, indeed. As a Presbyterian minister... He served many years in Newcastle working from St Philip's in Watt Street, which unfortunately is now closed as a church. He was a civic-minded minister 
and he showed no denominational prejudice. He would work with anyone. And he was always ready to help those in need. If you're a member of his flock and you went to him with a problem, it was fixed for you on the spot. He was a great role model for many. We found the story of the Ryan brothers in volume two fascinating. There is a headstone in Highland Crescent Cemetery in East Maitland, which is well worth a visit. Mm. And the story cut into the red sandstone headstone details an injustice. And portion of the inscription inscription has actually been called seditious. Oh, wow. Oh, yes, indeed. And you want me to read that part? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Erected by Philip Ryan in memory of his brother Michael Ryan of Swan Reach, a native of Thornback Parish of St Canisius, County Kilkenny Island, who has been circumvented of his just and legal property, prosecuted by willful and corrupt perjury, returned guilty by an infamous and bigoted jury for being a sincere patriot and sentenced wrongly by the laws of the land. That's a mouthful. It is. It must have taken a degree of courage for Philip to erect such a monument. Mm. But the fact that it has survived suggests his views may have been shared by many, Mm. especially amongst our Irish convict population. Each of the 150 stories helps us to understand the past a little better. And it is from the past that we learn the lessons to to guide our decisions into the future. And... Although we have done 150 stories, there are still many, many others out there. And it would be great if someone were to take over and produce a volume four. (laughs) Stop looking at me. (laughs) Um, Because there are also many people who are willing to write the stories of members of their family and other people in whom they're interested. Yeah. and it is this preservation of our local stories that, that you know, it, the work that you have done, of course, is absolutely stellar. Uh, the work, the ongoing work and assistance that people can get from mm. the Newcastle Family History Society um, is incredibly important. Mm. And I, I just, yeah, I just congratulate you on that immense amount of work that you've done and that you continue to do uh, because I know that that next couple of editions of military uh, stories will be will be coming out as well, and I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, once again, if people would like to um, to to find the volumes that you've done so far, volumes one to three, um, they're online nf nfhs.org.au for the Newcastle Family History Society, um, or pop into the library at the Mechanics Institute, Building 68 Elder Street in Lambton. I think you both know how much of a fan I am of your work. Thank you so much for continuing to do what you do. Make sure you let us know uh, once the walks are re-established because I think there'd be a lot of people who'd like mm, to, to come and yes. take part on that. So hopefully the Cemetery Trust mm. uh, will be helping to enable that again very soon. Thank you so much for your time. Thank Pleasure. you, Carol. Thanks for listening to this podcast. And if you'd like to hear more about the publications we have to offer or other family history-related topics, you can visit our website, www.nfhs.org.au, and click on the link to podcasts. You can also find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. We look forward to you joining us again on Newcastle Family History Society podcasts. (music) 